Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. This is episode 69 and we've got Peter Dager, aka PBD, on this podcast. And for those of you who've been following me for a while, you know that I've been trying so hard to get a really business-minded esports player onto the podcast, someone with true top-of-the-line competitive experience in a global market who also has a massive interest and has taken steps towards building themselves in a business practice. So that's a lot of what PPD and I talked about today. He's won numerous global tournaments and also run a few large businesses and is now sitting as an advisor in the space as well as a team captain and a current player. There's a lot of interesting discussion here too about the game Dota 2 and how the players see themselves in the market. Um, a lot of really interesting discussion too around how the Dota 2 players simply don't care about marketing and monetizing themselves outside of prize money because the prize money in their mind outweighs everything else. So enjoy episode 69. I did too. Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up, enter the industry, or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going. If you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest, suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at bigesports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at bigesports underscore gg. So I think an easy way to start the conversation, can you give the, the quick, very basic rundown of what it's like being a Dota player commercially? Obviously, you're a player, you're contracted to a team, you're playing in tournaments. What's, what's the basic of your life looking like contract-wise and, and tournament-wise? Uh, well, contract-wise, most teams do kind of like, it's like everything is just yearly-based in Dota, and it revolves around the International, which is the tournament that happens, like the $30 million tournament that happens once a year in around August. Uh, contracts usually begin in September and end at the end of that tournament. And um, yeah, it just goes year-by-year year base, and I've had the opportunity to play for lots of different teams. Uh, I played on Optic, who was in Dallas. I'm now playing on NIP, who was in Sweden. I was on EG, who was in California. And every time I would switch to a new team, I myself would pick up and move to that new city so I could become a more integral part of that company and you know rub shoulders with employees and get to know people and develop relationships to um, just help further my own, I guess, um, what's the social capital um, within mm. the team? Just just because. Yeah. Uh, as you know, I'm like I'm like the captain and the leader of my team, and organizations come to me because teams inside Dota are organically built by the players within them. So people come to me thinking, you know, we're an organization and we want to have a Dota team. What you got to find is a leader in Dota, a captain who teams form around, and, and that's somebody I am. So I've always had a lot of uh, leverage going into those negotiations, and um, people are. I'm excited to hire me. So after the international, you get you field X amount of offers depending on how popular you are and how much people want you, and you just make the best decision and try to find the best fit. Um, a lot of times it's region based. Sometimes you know if you want to play in Europe, you want to find a European organization. North America, same thing. Mm -hmm. Southeast Asia, whatever. Um, those organizations are more equipped in those areas to take care of you better than they could elsewhere, and you got to take all that into account along with salaries, prize pool cuts, um, and overall, just like, do you believe in this organization, right? Like, there's a ton of esport teams that are, you know, 
bunch of upcoming people who are trying to start. And Dota is one of the games uh, because of Valve's kind of there's you know they're there on the outside letting people kind of participate. They don't they didn't lock anything up. They didn't franchise it. There's there's yeah. an opportunity of entry inside Dota and CS:GO, and that's what makes um, and that's one of the reasons why Dota is such an appetizing uh, game for esport teams to get involved with. So when when you're choosing an organization to play for. Are, are they giving you free reign then to, to find your other players? How often are they becoming part of the recruitment process and, and things like that as you're forming your team? It depends on their experience in the game. Uh, NIP, when I joined, didn't really have a lot of experience in the game. They had had, uh, they had, had a team uh, once before, I think it was like two years ago before I joined, and that mm-hmm. didn't work out particularly well. Um, fact of the matter is most of the time these organizations just don't have the same knowledge of the space that someone like myself would so if they can convince themselves to believe in me i kind of have uh full reign and power to make changes um decide what regions we want to play in um kind of do whatever you know they trust me to make the best decisions possible for myself which will also be the best for them and that's just winning and being a successful team because there's not a lot more there's there's the best thing for any esports organization i think i mean obviously you got to have your business together you can't go bankrupt but a successful team will take you farther than anything else and i guess you you were talking about like the free-flowing nature of dota 2 and like pulling apart one thing you said at the end that that i know as a fan that people watching might not necessarily know is that there's one Big tournament a year, the international, which is you know anywhere up to thirty-five million USD prize pool, and after that you've got the post TI shuffle, where players are pinging all over the place quite often. There's organizations that are losing whole teams, that are losing one or two players. Um, you know you've got Team Liquid, ex Team Liquid, making their own organization. You've got almost every single Dota two team is is you know picking up and, and dropping one, two, three, four players at a time. What do you what do you think about that for the stability of the scene? or the teams in regards to their competitiveness? Is it a strong drive for you as a captain to keep your team together as much as possible to keep that same five for years to come? Uh, I don't know about the same five. It really just depends on your success. Like if I'm on a team that's not having a ton of success, you know, it might make sense for me to try and make some changes because sometimes a new roster change can be uh, revitalizing for a team's morale. Uh, it also, you could just find a better player who has more skill and can take you farther. So... Changing rosters mm-hmm. isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think it is really nice to keep a core of players together. So if you can find a couple of people who, you know, have the same kind of thinking and align with you, uh, going into the international, playing in the international, hopefully, and then when you go out into that roster mania, if you can have three players locked in, it's really easy to find those next two. It's when you know it's when you're down to like one or two people, and everybody's getting different offers from everywhere. There's only you know there's only you you play one position. There's only there's only one spot available on these teams if they're looking for you know, exposition. Mm. So it's if you have a core of people together, it's really easy to find those last two. If you got you know one or two, it's it can be pretty tough to put together a full roster because everybody's just busy feeling offers all over the place, and who knows where they're going to end up. And like I, I used to play, you know, semi semi pro Counter Strike in, in Australia. Obviously, not at your level in Dota, but the the easiest way for me to explain that is, you know, my team always had a core three or a core four, and quite often it was our leader, and then it was two people that would hold a bomb site together. Do you find that's fairly similar in Dota? It's it's the kind of the, the carry and the support player. They they follow each other around, or is there any sort of general formula? 
No, I don't think there's a real general formula right now. I mean, the captain, I think, is generally almost always part of the core just because they're they're a leader for a reason. They have um, they have that leadership skill, which is very, very unique in Dota, mostly because I think a lot of people are a little bit introverted that play video games and aren't so outspoken mm. and social. Um, for me, it was just I, I used to be just a player, you know, because I was I was just an up and comer. I was like kind of nervous playing with people i just wanted to be as good as them and at some point things just stopped happening for me and i kind of just had to take control of my own situation and instead of backing down in that position i rose to the i rose to the challenge and just took control Mm -hmm. and became a leader and people admired that and it got me uh much further than i had gotten before and so i've just kept at it and now it's you know it's not a question when i join a team who is the leader it's it's going to be me. Um, sorry, what was your original question to get back to it? Yeah, no, I think I think you're that's talking pretty... about, no, you're talking about the core of the team. So my yeah, the core, core of the team, team is yeah. me and Sahil or Universe, and him and I had played previously together on EG uh, back in 2014 to 2016. And he's he's a little bit older as well. I think he's like 30. I'm 28, and then our other teammates mm-hmm. are between like 22 and 19. So we kind of have like, we're like older and experienced guys and uh, we're definitely the core of the team, the two of us. Uh, the rest of the guys are pretty up and coming and there's, you know, we're still trying to, they're still trying to reach their potential and stuff. And um, I wouldn't make a decision about the team without him. And I think that when you're in that position, I think it does kind of create that, that nice bond and strength in a team. And it just feels better knowing that like your teammates have your back. So we, you, you mentioned like oft, often when you're signing with these different teams, EG, Optic, NIP, you follow them around country to country. It's been quite common in the past for players to always live in the same house together in a team house. And now it seems to be going more towards facilities and boot camps. Do you have, do you have a preference? Can you weigh in on, on one versus the other? Yeah, I definitely prefer the like living in an apartment and then traveling to work to go to the office for the boot camp. I'm very, very lucky that I have an apartment in Stockholm. So when we do our boot camps in Stockholm, I can stay in my apartment rather than staying in a hotel or a team house or something like that. Um, Mm. And it just really depends on your team and it depends on the players. We've got a lot of young guys. Most of them live at home with their parents. Um, So a team house would be a better and more realistic option for them. You know, you could have a cleaning service come in, you know, you could have someone help them with their laundry, like, cook meals for them, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm a little bit older. I have experience living on my own and I prefer it that way. I like, I enjoy my time away from my team and away from mm-hmm. the game uh, much more now than I did when I was younger, mostly just because I've grown up and I've started to think about lots of different things rather than when I was younger, more so their age. And all I thought about was Dota. It didn't bother me, you know, where I was sleeping, what I was doing. And I would dream about Dota. I'd wake up, you know, ready to play another game. And I'd say that like that, that thirst has kind of, uh, it's kind of gone down a bit as I've aged up. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a common question I've asked myself as, you know, there was a period of time when I was trying to, you know, go pro and CSGO and be one of the best in the world is I've got a, I've got a girlfriend at the time I was 20, 21 and wanted a dog, you know, is it, is it reasonable for me to live with a bunch of 18 year olds that maybe don't pick up after themselves and such, but is it worth that trade off because of the team cohesion? 
you get to see live in with those people you're with them every day does that help for depends for on the team gameplay? depends how long they depends how well they get along sometimes space is helpful sometimes taking a break from your teammates you know we're in an incredibly high stress environment um super competitive everybody's you know you fight for your spot on that team every day if you're not mm-hmm. up to, you know if you if you're not cutting it then you're going to find yourself not on a team next year or you know maybe even next month so um it's pretty cutthroat because we're competing for 40 million dollars throughout the year and it's an opportunity of a lifetime to do that and if somebody's not giving it their all you don't want that person on your team is there is there a window of time say you cut a player and bring a new one in what what's the window of time as to when you think you're operating at 100% again is it easy to sub in and out of player i think it's pretty easy to sub in and out players everybody on everybody kind of speaks the language of dota um at that highest level already and um, a lot of times teams kind of adapt to their newest player rather than the newest player adapting to the team. Um, and oftentimes that can actually build a lot of focus within a team, which is really helpful. Um, like, you know, some of the, the best TI runs have been done by teams who formed right before the international, just because mm-hmm. they, you know, it was simple. It was, it wasn't complicated. They don't, didn't have a bunch of baggage uh, from previous events throughout the year. They kind of just had a fresh start and they said, hey, let's go for it. And um, yeah, they did it. Yeah, makes sense to me. So let's take a bit of a change of pace and talk about more with you in the business side of things. You had a bit of a stint as the CEO of an esports team, Evil Geniuses, which for a while I believe was was meant, was functioning as a player-owned organization while you were a player and CEO. Yeah, I, they, I believe they still have player owners to this day. So um, like many other teams in Dota, the players are involved on the equity side of the company. What's the what's the day-to-day for you like when you're, like you're saying, you're basically playing for your life every day, but then also having to be involved in business situations. Does that put it in the too hard basket fairly quickly for you or are you able to manage it? Uh, well, I was working with Phil Aram, who's their COO um, currently. And uh, while he was on the team, he was our Dota manager, but then him and I were also working on the divestment from Amazon of the Evil Geniuses company to the to being owned by the players and him as well. And he kind of managed most of that while I was um, acting as a player. And then when I stopped playing in 2016 for a year, when I took over the job as CEO, um, he went back to you know still helping me with the divestment side, but mostly just being focused on the Dota team. And I kind of handled... Um, the other parts of EG, which, you know, managing payroll, uh, merchandise, um, signing of new rosters, getting into new games, uh, content, uh, you name it, I, I had a hand in it. It was uh, CEO is pretty much a jack of all trades position. So I learned a lot about mm-hmm. a lot of different things in that year. Do you think it's, do you think it's something we'll see other, other teams picking up in the future or other organizations? Like, I mean, it, it makes sense that might be common in Nigma or, you know, solo team organizations, or maybe even EG in the past when they were only Dota 2. But it to me, it, it seems surprising that, you know, EG being such a older organization, been around for a long time, the ecosystem would, would pinpoint a player as being the CEO as well with that extra added pressure. I think EG was, well, I wasn't, I didn't play. So that the pressure of playing was gone during that year. Mm. Um, oh, okay, right. I was, I was, I was kind of the person pushing for a lot of it. And I was an active part in, on that side, I think when I was on when I first joined EG and we started getting our first salaries, I was very confused and unsure about the in, amount that we were being paid, and I just wanted to know why we were being paid that amount. Not that it was low, not that it was high. 
I just, you know, you always want to say, hey, I wanted to get paid this much. And they said, I, you know, we can't do it. Or, oh, yeah, we can do that. No problem. Right. It's like, where mm-hmm. is that number exactly? And in esports, it's really vague, especially with a multi uh, a multi sport or multi esport team org. It's like mm-hmm. how much of your advertising budget is being is responsible or how much is the how much of your advertising uh, revenue is the Dota team bringing in versus, you know, the Counter-Strike team or the mm. fighting game players, right? How do you, is it 80%? Is it 90%? Is it 50%? You, you really, it's, it's really hard to figure that out. And so you can't like kind of just like split it up and say, Hey, we're making a hunt, we're making a million dollars and you know, 80% is from the Dota players. So we're going to give, we're going to split the $800,000 and give that to the five Dota players as their salary. Um, mm. It's, it's a little hard to do that, um, but I was always trying to figure it out, and that kind of led me to get more involved on the business side, and eventually led to me um, kind of taking over. Um, it was a little bit complicated because my team didn't really want to play with me anymore in that year, so it was like they kicked me from the team, but I was kind of the person doing all the business stuff, anyways. So I just kind of went there for a year, and then after a year, I just determined that just I just wasn't ready, and it just wasn't really what I was interested in doing at that time. So I stepped away and went back to being a player. Yeah. Something you said there is something I think about so often. I did a podcast with an organization owner here in Australia and one of his new investors and board asked him to do a profit and loss statement per team. And that stuck with me for a long time. Exactly like what you were saying, you know, is their CSGO team bringing in enough compared to their League of Legends team? And, you know, often you find sponsors, say like Logitech will say, you have to have a CSGO team. That's why we're sponsoring you because we're releasing a mouse that's tailored towards CSGO or, um, you know, working for Corsair in the past, it's kind of like, hey, can we can we work with more teams in Dota or we're releasing an MMO mouse We want to get into World of Warcraft or certain influences and things like that too. So there's always, like you were saying, there's always so many factors in the background. And more the more I talk to you, the more I think about it, Often I feel like it's the factor of the business people simply don't ask the players or tell the players what's going on. And there seems to be sometimes a bit of divide. Do, do you agree with that? Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are really busy. A lot of times the organizations don't want to trouble the players with involving them on things outside of them just competing in the games because them, the team's performing well is ultimately the most important thing for them. Um, bringing in the players to... You know, talk and have an opinion on all those sorts of things. You know, maybe some of the players would care about. Most of them probably wouldn't, and a lot of them mm. would see that as kind of like, "Oh, why are we doing this? Like, I don't want to bother." Mm. So we we talked um, we talked a bit before going live as well about business minded players, um, and we talked a bit about the start of the podcast as well. Can you give me a quick rundown of a few different typecasts? Of, of Dota 2 players and, and the kind of personalities that you see in the market? Um, sure. Well, most of, most of honestly, most of the Dota players are just hardcore Dota players. They are only really interested in just playing Dota. Uh, most of them don't even like live stream their games just because it's a distraction. Live streaming can be a bit exhausting and they just want to put all of their energy towards becoming a better Dota player so they can go to mm. the international and make, you know, win the international and make $5 million. So anything that's kind of in anything that kind of prevents them from placing better at the international is arguably a waste of their time, and um, that's why like brand building inside of Dota isn't very popular. That's kind of why it's hard for esport orgs to get involved because teams are constantly reshuffling to um, 
all, you know, it's not just we're going to change a player out. It's, you know, we're going to get a whole new roster and we're going to play on a different part of the world next year. And, mm. um, you know, we had a really good year. Now we have all these offers from all these other orgs and stuff. So a lot of the orgs nowadays, at least the big ones that are willing to pay you, you know, the big money, they want to sign people up on multi-year long contracts. And that, that can be really difficult um, to pull off. Mm. You know, there, yep. there are some there are some business minded Dota players, but it's just very very difficult for us to work together because everybody is kind of just representing themselves uh, inside of Dota. Because you know it'd be great if we all worked together to I don't know run our own events, um, you know establish a players committee and develop rules and handle punishments and do mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, but it's it's just hard to get everybody to work together because everybody's just so invested in themselves um, because of the international. So do you, do you think... Go ahead. Yeah, do you, do you think that then most of these problems come down to the fact of TI and, and it's waiting on the year of Dota? Yeah, I think it does come down to TI. I don't think that it's a problem. I think that it's just really different. Um, I think Dota mm-hmm. is... The players in Dota are incredibly powerful. Um, not that we take advantage of all the power, but I think that's why a lot of team orgs kind of shy away from it because we, uh, we, you can just kind of do whatever you want, whenever you want as a Dota player. And I don't think that exists as much in other games. So, yeah. And we, and we, we talked about this a bit off, like off the recording as well as on about that, like the word you said, social capital and relying on that. And to me, and and going into what you were saying about being the team captain and given the responsibility to bring the players around you, I feel like Dota is maybe less of a business and more of a player slash friendship environment than some other teams and some other games you're seeing, like League of Legends, for example, which seems to me from the outside is very contractual, very much like traditional sports. And I, I guess that's the way I would I would break down what you were saying. Yeah, and it's 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 a little bit unfortunate because it does kind of stunt the growth, especially of people from outside the game coming in. Most of the players mm-hmm. are not building their brands. You know, you go on to Dota Two operates entirely on Twitter, and the amount of professional players that tweet per day is like less than ten. And there's you know there's like <laughs> a thousand pro players, and no, just nobody really. It's not that it's not that people don't care. It's they just it's just not worth their headspace. It's just not incentivized at all, and. Mm. They don't really draw, you know, they don't like, it's, it's funny. It's so funny because I, I always tell people, or at least I tell their players, I've, I've been a big pusher in trying to help players and teams recognize the power that we have in this space, which is all of it or just about all of it. In my opinion, it's like, do you follow NIP on Twitter? And most of them are like, no, why would I follow NIP? Like what? Like they're just some company that, you know, pushes products. Um, they're like, do you follow ESL? No, like once again, it's just another company pushing advertisements, you know, and it's it's kind of shielded and hidden around running esports tournaments that you're supposed to, you know that you care about. But then it's like, do you follow PPD? Do you follow RTZ? Do you follow Sumail, the biggest names in Dota? And it's like, of course you follow them. Everybody follows them. And if these players would just get together and tell people where the party was, people would show up to that party. And that's kind of the power of eyeballs and attention, which is what all of this operates around. Um, but because of lack of organization and lack of education and lack of effort, the players don't really take advantage of that power. And we just kind of sit mm-hmm. around and let the third parties, we let the middlemen, we let the tournament organizers, the team or the team um, organizations, we kind of let them handle the stuff that we don't 
that we aren't willing to set up for ourselves. And you talked a little bit about like players setting themselves up for the future and owning, you know, parts of their company and things like that. And those are the opportunities that mm -hmm. a lot of us are leaving on the table um, just because we're more focused on placing better at the international, which it makes sense and it doesn't make sense. It depends on how um, it depends on how short-sighted you are versus, you know, building for your future because you can, you know, the amount of work that you put into kind of developing all that may lead to you placing worse at the international, uh, which, you know, if you build a successful team organization like Team Secret or Team Nigma, where you have an ownership stake in it, you know, you can build mm -hmm. for your future and you can have a career beyond your play or you can have a career beyond playing. Um, or you could just, or you could just win the international and get $4 million, put that in an investment account, make 10% a year and just be sitting pretty for the rest of your life. It's uh mm. and and that and that and and the requirements for that are just to play a lot of Dota, which is something you're already very comfortable with doing. You know, you've been doing it mm. for ten years, and it's 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 fun. Um, and so most people choose that option, which makes a lot of sense to me. Do you think a lot of those problems can be solved by better player agents, or by even say the Team Liquid model, where they've got an agency inside them called Liquid Media? Yeah. Um. Yeah, if the players are willing to, the, the, but the, the thing is, it still has to come from the players. Like Team Liquid isn't going to build. I mean, they're going to try to build the player, the the brand of the players. But at the end of the day, like it's kind of on those players themselves to do what Liquid's recommending to them. Like they kind of need to propel themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think like No Tail, for example, is doing a really good job. He just went to Peru to go to some gaming event and meet fans. And mm -hmm. um, you know, he's he, put, he does like little. He's got like somebody handling his YouTube channel and tries to live stream every once in a while and he's kind of really you know, pushing his brand out there i think that um but he but he's not playing actively at the moment so he's got he's got time to do it and he's got the headspace for it it's just you know we're we're just very very busy um it's hard to do other stuff and i don't think that like i just don't even think players would give a player agent like you're talking about the time of day like they just, mm -hmm. they just, it's just impossible to get involved. You said you talked about how hard it is to get high-profile esport players that are business-minded on a podcast like this. It's it's the same thing with you know with player agents trying to find people. Yeah, and I think from the business outset, it it seems like an easier problem than it is. You know, I've I've worked with influencers who are exactly the same before. Who, I'm, not sure you know, I'm, not sure if, I'm not sure if it's a problem. It's yeah, it's just it is how it is. Sorry, yeah. Basically, to phrase it, the problem I'm saying is that. I mean, a lot of the time, I think people in business look at a player and say, you could be making so much money, you know, give me the reins, I'll help you make a lot of money. But it's not, it's not that easy. You know, I think people look at Ninja and say, oh, he's got a lot of views, it must be easy to be his manager. You know, he must just have all these contracts coming in, you're signing $10 million deals left, right and center, and, you know, Ninja can sit back and relax. But it's not that case. It's the fact of once that's created, you still have to deliver. You still need to fly to Peru to do that thing, to take out that time. You still need to sign the contracts. You still need to sit in the room talking to people in suits that you don't want to meet and you don't want to be there. You'd rather be playing Dota and thinking about TI at the same time. So I think it's important to, um, yeah, think about it from the player side of things, which is exactly like what you're saying. Definitely. Mm. So we've got a lot of questions in the chat and, and a lot of them about player issues, I guess. Can, can you touch on what some of the biggest player issues are? There's always so many common threads in business of new taxation agents coming into esports. There's an umpteenth amount of new esports lawyers coming in that are talking about saving people from dodgy contracts. There's there's visa agents and visa issues. Are, are all of these common problems that, that you and your team face month to month, day to day? I would not say common problems for us. I think a lot of the Western 
uh, at least the Western big orgs are pretty developed at this point where kind of shady stuff like maybe that is issues doesn't really happen. Um, I know a lot of players are chasing money from like a Southeast Asian tournament organizer uh, named GESC, but I think that they just like pretty much went bankrupt and I think Valve is suing them. Um, but I, I mean, you people, you know, the players talk amongst themselves, right? People message me, you know, if, if I was, if I was thinking about joining team liquid, you know, I might message an ex player on team liquid and say, Hey, what was being on liquid like? And they would, they would just probably mm-hmm. tell me straight up, like, you know, this was it good. Was it bad? What was their issues? Uh, you know, did they, did they try to, did they annoy you too much? Did they try to take, you know, make you do too much media or whatever it might be. But, um, I personally really haven't had too many issues. I've always gotten along with my team orgs and I understand that it's uh it's a team effort on their side and my side to kind of, you know, bring more attention to the brand. And I think that when you're both you both kind of have like as long as you're both aligned in that thinking, then there shouldn't really be any issues. Right? I get paid to promote them and I'm gonna promote them. It's my job. Makes sense. So I'm just scrolling through. I got some got some interesting questions here coming in the chat about player agents. I mean, keep, keeping on that same path, do do you have a player agent yourself? Do you know of any within the Dota Two scene that are any any form of successful? No, I don't. I don't have a player agent, and I did try working with a couple of lawyers uh, in the space on that player agency side. Unfortunately. Mm, I wasn't very impressed, um, mostly just like with their timeliness. Maybe they were busy with tons of other people or whatever it might have been. It just wasn't for me. I also think that I have more, exp- <laughs> as ridiculous as this might sound, and you know, maybe I sound a little bit arrogant. I don't think that any lawyer that's trying to work in esports has an, as much experience inside or with esport contracts and especially in Dota 2 than I do. And I have experience dealing with contracts previously. Like we talked about my, my time on evil geniuses, um, being the CEO, Mm. I, and there's not really that many things to discuss. Like in Dota, it's like you negotiate your salary, negotiate your prize pool cut. If you feel like you're going to be selling a lot of merchandise, which most people don't. Um, I don't think a lot of esport companies do very well on merchandising and especially like players, unless you're like some big brand like shroud or ninja or lyric or something like that. But those guys Mm -hmm. are, those guys have eclipsed. They're they're way bigger than esports, and um, I just I just don't think there's there's just there's just nothing to to do about it. I mean, every esports contract has like a you know like the terrible termination clause where they're like you know if the esport org wants to end your contract tomorrow, they can do it, and everybody mm-hmm. just signs up anyways. And I don't know, like you just fight for your spot, and if you're good enough to be on the team, you're good enough to be on the team, and. You know, when you get kicked off the team, it's not because the org didn't want you; it's because your teammates don't want you. What's the what's the tier two scene of Dota two like? Is it is it something that needs development? I've seen a lot of discussion recently about it on on Reddit and Twitter and things like that. I'd love to get your take on it. Yeah, it depends if you want a different like. So Dota is kind of like this big boys club. You know, it's like the same hundred dudes that have just been traveling around the world, just raking in money left and right. And you know, if you're one of those hundred dudes, it's a it's a pretty good gig. Um, mm. there isn't a lot of, you know, I think we had like 20% turnover last year of players at the international, which honestly isn't that bad. Um, but most of the people who, you know, most of the people that you compete against, you I, I've been competing against them for six years, right. And they, and they were competing against each other even before then. And I was competing against mm. some of them in heroes of new earth. So it's been like the same guys, um, 
in order to really get better at Dota, you need to have that experience against those top players. So if you don't get the opportunity to either scrim them or compete in smaller tournaments against them, it's really hard to kind of take yourself to the next level. Mm. Um, I tried starting a uh, North American, uh, it's a North American Dota Challengers League. It's NADCL. I started a tier, like a, a league for amateurs and semi-professionals um, at the beginning of last year. I operated it for three seasons, so about I don't know six six months of the year, and it was basically a place for like non-sponsored teams to compete and earn money. And the biggest problem with anything like minor league is if it's not connected or pipelined with a major league or uh, where the eyeballs and attention actually are. Good luck ever getting people to watch it. Um, mm. I think getting give viewership for minor events is nearly impossible. Any way you try to do it, um, unless you have like those, unless you have like Artizi and Sumail, like the biggest players in Dota, casting the event, nobody's really going to watch um, some random players they never heard about playing against each other. So mm-hmm. that uh, tier two events only really cater to like super fans and people that are like beyond invested into it who just have way too much time on their hands and there's not enough of those to uh warrant selling sponsorships for which is like 90 percent if not more of esports revenue and uh yeah as a result there's no money so there's no one to do it and people like to crutch on valve and say it's valve's responsibility to do everything inside of dota and yeah maybe it is and maybe the international has led us to you know not be it's led us it's distracted us from building it up ourselves. But the cool thing that Valve did do is that they gave us all the opportunity to do it. You know, Blizzard and Riot, they said, mm-hmm. nobody else can touch our product. Nobody else can touch our IP. We're going to control all of it. We're going to do it ourselves. And Valve said, no, we don't want to do any of that. You guys can do whatever you want with Dota, but we're still going to run the international. But the international has made those kind of um, those third party efforts it's kind of made them very difficult because all of the people, the players, the ones that the fans care about, they don't want to do anything that's not involved with the international. That's why we had the DPC get developed. That's why the third-party events, ESL, DreamHack, PGL, uh, MDL, they all started. They got the DPC points as a part of the DPC season, which creates you know, creates ties with the international, which makes players care about and makes fans care about. Um mm. But it's it's hard to say if that system has been good for Dota. Um, it could look a lot different. So what's your thoughts on there's never-ending amount of companies now that are trying to create tournament platforms to spruik the Jota Pro model? And when I talk to you, when I talk to old Counter-Strike 1.6 players, when I talk to CSGO players and ask them, what's the path from Jota Pro? Generally, they say, I don't know, just be good and play against other good people which seems to be the, the sense of, of what you said as well. So what does the the Jota Pro path look like for a new player who's 13 years old now, just watched TI9 for the first time sure. and you know, wants to be on stage at TI11? Well, you know, it's pretty late to be completely honest, but do, people do get in. I know Gunner's on my team. He's had only been, he only, he started in Dota 2. He's only been playing for, I don't know, five, four or five years. Um, and he rose to the top pretty quick. I think, uh, Dota is pretty lucky because it has a matchmaking system built into the game and a ranking system built into the game. So you know if you if you find yourself mm-hmm. in the top ten on the ladder, I think you'll definitely get noticed, and people will definitely say, "Hey, who's that guy?" The top hundred ladder is pretty much dominated by professional players. So if you can manage to break into that, people might um, give you a shot. 
I don't know. It's if you're if you're not playing video games and you just decide you want to be a pro gamer, I that's just not going to happen. Like uh, I tell people, like when did I start? You know, when did I start like getting really good at video games? And it's like I don't know when I was seven years old when my dad bought me an N64 and Mario Kart, and I had to beat my little brother, otherwise I was less of a human than he was, <laughs> or you know whatever it was. Like you, you need that competitiveness yeah. and you need to take all of the gaming seriously. So I, I grew up playing every game under the sun and i wanted to be the best at it so i found ways to strategize maybe cheat um whatever i needed to do to get to the top i would do it so um Mm. that's kind of led me into the professional gaming career that's that's the first time i've ever heard someone say something like that and it makes perfect sense when you see you know someone's one of the best nfl players in the world soccer players whatever usually you ask them about their history and they've been playing six sports since they were three years old but no one ever talks about that in esports. Even even sports, I think, is helpful for esport players and stuff. It's just that fierce competitiveness. You know, you're 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 teaching your mind ways to uh, beat other people's minds and their and their physical skill. Obviously, in professional sports, um, but most of that mm. stuff is mental. I, I mean, physical sports have definitely a huge physical part. But you got to be you got to be smart. You got to be sports smart to get to the top. You got to be sp- smart to to use it. I guess. A question I really wish I asked you before while we were still on that topic. CSGO players been in the news. They denied a CSGO international that was proposed to them. Do you think it's the right move for them? The players denied the international? Is that what they said? Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I didn't see the news. Um, I think the CSGO players have a pretty interesting setup. It's a little bit different than Dota. Uh, I think the CSGO players make like much higher salaries, um, but they have less to play for throughout the year. They have tons of well if, if they did do the csgo international they might fall into the same trap that dota is where if you're you know if your event isn't tied to the csgo international then you you're not going to get the top teams at it right and mm. as a result like the csgo guys they're going to events like almost every week those third-party tournaments would probably dry up um pretty quickly because of lack of interest of the top top teams and there's only X amount of spots at each tournament. You know, they, I think they go to a lot of like six team events, eight team events, four team events. Whereas Dota is, you know, we do like 16 team events um, and they're like the only events that exist. So we have to include everybody. And then the people that get left out, there's pretty much nothing for them. And if that happened in CS, um, a lot of the teams just wouldn't be able to make a living. And a lot of their sponsors of those teams wouldn't be able to attract any eyeballs and inevitably there'd be less professional CSGO players. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good answer. And there's there's obviously a lot of, there's been so much discussion around burnout of players, especially in CSGO, like you were saying, there's people that are flying from one championship to another to another that are, you know, affecting their mental health and their ability as a team and their play. Is that something that is experienced in Dota or is that being cleared up by the DPC points and the, and the cold calendar being a little bit more aligned? It's definitely experience. The calendar is aligned, but we are incredibly busy. It's, you know, we go from, uh, let's say we go from, we boot camp for the qualifier and then we play the qualifier. So I just got back from a 13 day long boot camp in Dallas. We practice for like four or five, six, maybe six days. And then we played the major qualifier, which was three days. And then we played the minor qualifier, which was uh, three days. We only had to play two of them. And mm-hmm. that was, you know, that was two weeks, right? I come home. I'm here. This is our biggest break of the year. Uh, we have like a three-week break for Christmas, right? And then 
immediately I'm flying off again to go to Stockholm to play in another boot camp uh, for like two or three days. And then we're going to the minor for a week. And if we win the minor, we go, we fly straight from there to the major. And then after the major, we fly home. And, and the minor is like a week and a half long event. The major is like a two week long event. And then I would fly home. And then the next week we would start boot camp for the next qualifier, which would be another two week trip. So I, we're pretty busy in Dota if, you, if you're if you're there competing at events, mm. especially if you're the teams that have to play in the minors. I, mm. On NIP last year, we played in, I think, three minors, and we won two of them. So we did the minor to major to qualifier kind of roadie, or rampage or whatever you want to call it. And, I, I mean, we're busy all year long, so we're definitely uh, working hard for the money. In terms of, like, burnout and stuff, um, I, if you can't handle it, like... We get paid a lot to do what we do to play video games. So if it's not for you, like just step aside. Like there's thousands of people that would take your spot, you know, in a minute. Mm. And touching on that, we've had some questions in the comments. Can you can you touch on Dota Two salaries around the world and also how they might compare to other other esports titles? I think that we have much lower than probably League of Legends and Counter Strike. Otherwise, I think we're up there as well. I think those are the three: Dota, CS:GO, and League of Legends are the the biggest three esports. Uh, in the world, and um, mm. they're probably paid respectively the same, or not the same, but maybe I don't know. I don't know what league people get paid, but I know CS:GO is pretty high. And NALCS starting salary is about three hundred k. Okay, yeah. So league is probably the highest. Uh, CS:GO is probably second, and then Dota is probably third. Uh, it just depends on where you are, how much success you've had, what region you're competing in. You know, money is a lot different in different parts of the world. You know, mm. some people some people pay a lot in taxes, others don't. Um, I'm not really sure how to answer that question, but if you're like a top Dota pro who's been competing at the international for years to come, like you're probably paid in the six figures, and uh, you're pretty comfortable. Mm. And it's interesting. Most, you most, were... most of your money comes through prize money, which these other te- uh, these other games don't have the opportunity to do. Like we get to compete at the international. Right, so if you get not last, you make a hundred thousand dollars in prize money, which is just you know, you count that on top of your salary. And Dota player, Dota pros that are finishing top sixteen at the international are making more money than CS:GO pros and you know some League of Legends pros for sure. Yeah, and to and and to get you to expand on this too, the model is flipped compared to what most people think, right? So like when most investors come to me, they think that esports owning an esports team is like owning a horse in horse racing, where you salary the jockey and you keep ninety nine ish percent of the prize pool. Whereas if you're an organization and you're signing up PPD to play for you at the international, they're not keeping ninety nine percent of your prize pool. No, definitely not. Those those prize numbers, especially at the international, are between zero and ten percent max. I would say, and the, that's what we talked about, like players kind of being a lot more powerful in Dota. Is like the team orgs, they need us. Because we own the space, and mm. um, we're, we're, we're most of us, at least like, there's the, I would say like the captains on teams are probably the more business-minded people, just because they have like the uh, that organizational, that leadership kind of skill, like Kuroki, Puppy, myself, No Tail, right? Like we're Fly, mm-hmm. even they all. I think those are the guys that like handle like a lot of times like, contract negotiations. My teammates rely on me to do them for them. So mm. in a sense, like I'm almost their agent. I guess you could say. Um, sorry, what was the question? Talking about talking about salaries, talking about prize cuts. Oh, and, we, and I was talking about the likeness from. Yeah, the, the, I think the, the players own. The players just have so much more power and opportunities to do whatever they want, go to the events that they want to go to, and I think mm-hmm. as a result, 
And we talked about like, it's really scary for organizations to get invested into Dota because, you know, after the international next year, they might just not have a team. And all of the, you know, let's say you put $800,000 of salaries into a team last year and then all of a sudden, poof, they're gone. You know, if you can't sign a three, four, five year contract and you're, you're trying to like organizations hire Dota teams to, to, to connect their fan bases with the players on their team's fan bases. And mm-hmm. if the players, you know, get up and leave after year one or after year two, your entire investment goes straight down the hole. Like those fans, those Dota fans that followed NIP followed NIP because, you know, they were, fans of my team and the players on my team. They're not fans of NIP. So when NIP Mm -hmm. leaves and I go join another organization, they're not going to stay with NIP. They're going to go to that new organization. And yeah, so all of that value is derived by the players. Yeah, there's so many, I mean, like you've said so many times, there's just so many differences between Dota and everything else. And I think to pull out a lot of what you were saying about TI versus no TI, there's no right or wrong answer necessarily it's the franchised and lockdown nature of overwatch and league that's the very open nature of dota people like to lump esports in all together i think that yeah you can to some extent they do have a lot of similarities but dota Mm -hmm. is pretty unique and it's not necessarily you know it's not like that buzzword esports that everybody is uh throwing around these days so i mean as as a player you have the stage now to talk to a bunch of business people there's people in the chats that are running medium to large style esports um, companies as people listen to the podcast that are working in influential positions outside of esports that are gaining this information. I mean, as a, as a player, what do you want these people to know that you, that you think that they don't know and they should? About Dota? Yeah, about Dota, about esports, about anything about your experience as a player in the space. Oh, wow. Um, well, there's huge opportunity if you're an honest, hardworking person. Uh, it's really hard to find people and hire in esports, especially because the people that you want are the people who know esports. And those people are people that didn't go to college and they stayed at home and they gave up their their actual lives just to play video games. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. also a lot of those people who did that are also just lazy and competent people. And yeah, they have the experience and they know what's going on, but they're not good workers. And a lot of those good workers have college degrees and, you know, left their bedrooms and did other things and didn't just play video games all the time. But they don't really understand the space. So you got to find like a nice little mix and blend of of those people. And if you do find those people, you know, hang on to them for dear life because uh, they're few and far between in the space. And if you are one of those people and you know somebody, right, if you got a little bit of political connections um, and you join an organization, you'll you'll rise to the top very, very quickly. Um, I grew up and I lived with a buddy of mine from high school. His name is Kodiak Schroyer. He uh, was, um, he was, we were living together in San Francisco and he was a bartender. He had just gotten out of FEMA, um, which is like a volunteer organization that does disaster relief in um, Southern America. And he moved out to San Francisco with me and I was running EG at the time. And I said, why don't you just quit your job bartending and you can come be our call of duty and fighting game manager, right? And he just did a fantastic job. He helped me run the company for a year. And then when we went to Optic, he became our Dota manager for that new team. And with the brand new Infinite taking over and Optic kind of taking over and stuff, he he um, he started taking on a lot more responsibility. And I always tell people, like, people are like, man, how did he just go straight up the ladder? He's now this, I think he, he was the C vice president at Optic 
uh, when they were still together. And now he's doing uh, competitive operations for Immortals. Uh, he was mm. one of the people to survive that kind of transfer from Optic to Immortals. And he's doing a, a super awesome job, and I'm sure everybody loves him there. Um, but what I, you know, people ask me, like, oh, why, how did he do that? Like, he, isn't, he didn't go to college. He didn't do any of this stuff. And it's like, he answered emails in a prompt manner. He, you know, he was on time for appointments and calls. He, I don't know. And he just, you know, he just, he just did a good job, right? He just wasn't, he just wasn't a piece of shit, honestly. Like that was the thing. And uh, yeah, he's, he's yeah. killing it. So if you can get in yeah. somewhere and you do a good job, there's a huge opportunity in this space. I 100% agree. It's nigh on impossible to find the right mindset and the right level of employee in esports. And often the way I explain it is there are a lot of senior business people who want to come into esports that that can get paid in command salaries that can't be paid by the current ecosystem that oh. might be a good fit. And there is an umpteenth amount of junior people who want their first job and want to hang out with PPD backstage at TI and not actually do the work that would also like a job. And Or there's a lot of account managers who have relevant experience to basically answer emails and tweet out and do social media managing. I'm personally finding it very hard myself and my other friends in similar business situations to me to find anywhere from junior to mid to senior level management. That's where a lot of the gap is right now, I feel. Yeah, I agree for sure. And it's funny because I have like, because I'm a captain and an organizer in my Dota team, I actually have like pretty decent uh, management skills, right? And so I can actually, I've had access to a lot of like mid to upper level management positions be offered to me because of my ability to lead a Dota team, which is pretty cool. Mm. Um, That's the age old of, um, I, remember, I remember this years ago, people discussing in high school, putting like uh, World of Warcraft raid leader yeah, on your yeah, yeah, resume. Yeah. And that basically, that's what you are doing. It's, it's, it's transcended it's, the it's, name. You that's know it. what? And if you know what that person's job responsibilities were and how, you know, how serious they took it or how good they were at it, it might actually be, you know, it is a very valuable skill, no doubt. Um, yeah. I was going to say another thing, and my, I might imagine my dad is probably watching, um, and he's going to love this because we talk about it all the time, is there's this huge elephant in the room in esports that people just, just ignore, is that the majority of people who are watching esports and you might think spend money on esports are just sitting in their bedrooms not spending money on anything. They just sit on their computer and play video games. And mm. if if your business idea doesn't involve, I don't know, convincing that person to spend money, like it's probably just a rotten idea. And this whole industry is what's what's the word? It's it's all kind of bullshitting itself to some extent because you have companies that have esports divisions and then you have other companies who do esports marketing and they're all just filling each other's pockets um with money and uh Mm. yeah it's kind of just perpetuating itself so at some point maybe it's going to go away otherwise like you know just keep just keep riding it out like i mean it's going to last for a while i imagine but there's uh there's uh there's definitely some holes that's a really good discussion, actually. I've been talking to a lot of people about this recently, and I think in my last podcast, maybe I started to breach the topic publicly, which is if you're creating a new company in the space, are you adding something new? Are you bringing a new revenue to esports, or are you just trying to take from others? So a direct example would be if you're opening a new tournament organizer, are you just aiming to steal clients from ESL? 
and from other such companies or actually, or are you actually aiming to bring new money into the esports space? Same point if you're opening a new organization. Every day, I'm sure you get messages, I get messages, hey, I want to make the next Team Liquid, I want to make the next Cloud9, I want to make the next TSM. But what, what makes you different from those three teams whose main MO is to win tournaments? Why can't you be like FaZe, do something a bit different? Be like 100 Thieves, do something a bit different? You know, bring new money and bring new ideas into the industry rather than just fighting all for the same piece of the pie. Definitely. And there'll be, you know, there'll be a 99 of those guys. And hopefully that one person has a different idea and does it the right way. And hopefully they find opportunities to actually make it happen. Um, because pe- mm-hmm. people will find their people will find a way to make money, but a majority of people will definitely fall short. That, that, that's true in every business. So. Yeah. And I think relying less on the handouts from publishers is, is a big path going forwards i think we've seen you know we've seen recently blizzard with heroes of heroes of the storm you know they had a they had a fairly strong tier two tier three esports scene and then they just said goodbye and that's it died overnight kind of thing so i'm very interested in you know increasing that sustainability and i guess that's along the same path and topics that you and i were talking about before as a player you know life after playing how can you set yourself up besides you know not everyone can be no tail and win two TIs back to back, you know, not everyone can win multiple minors and majors like you've done um, and things like that too. So, you know, how can you make that sustainability happen for a player? But at the same time, if the player doesn't care or they just don't have time, you know, you you just can't make someone care about something they don't want. Absolutely. So what's coming up next for you? Uh, We're headed to Ukraine for the upcoming DPC minor and hopefully we can win and play at the, the DreamHack major in Leipzig, Germany. How how close are you guys to to locking in your TI appearance? Like, how many majors, how many minors do you have to win to to be confident? Not close at all. Um, it, it's hard to say. It's the points are distributed, you know, based on placement at the events. We went to the first minor, mm-hmm. we didn't do well, so we, we definitely are very far from that. For um, but last year we got fourth at the first major, and we were pretty much qualified to TI even with four events, you know, existing after that. So. Um, it really just depends on how many of the top teams continue to take those top slots at the majors and, you know, the majority of the points. And that'll determine how good of a placement you need at one or two tournaments in order to make TI. Otherwise, you just play at the qualifiers at the end and you hope for the best. So I try not to think about it too much. I just always put my best foot forward and, you know, that'll inevitably, that'll that'll earn you your best placement. And if you make it to TI, great. If you don't, you know, still playing Dota, right? Mm. What about what about besides being a player? You mentioned before you're running a tournament organization. I assume that doesn't exist anymore. Is there anything else in the wings that you've been thinking about for a while? No, I was pretty on the of trying to build something inside of Dota, like with all the other Dota players and stuff. But it, you know, like I said, it's just really hard to get mm-hmm. people to care and to get involved on something like that. Um, I'm working. I, I I take on a couple opportunities outside the game. Just you know, I, I'm doing some um, some advising work at Roundhill Investments, which is like a ETF for esports. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the opportunities that I decided to just run with, and I'm gonna see how it goes. Hopefully, hopefully it's really cool and everybody likes it. I I don't you know I know a little bit about it, but obviously I'm not I'm not a financial guy. I'm a Dota player. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I I always look at opportunities. Usually, I say no. Yeah, makes sense. And if anyone watching or listening to the podcast wants to follow you online, where can they do so? Where's the best place? The best place uh, would be here on LinkedIn. If you're like a business-minded person who you know might want to learn something from me, or if I can offer you something, maybe maybe that would be great. Um, 
if you're just like a fan or something like twitter is a great place to follow me and if you're like a super fan sorry learn out here if i'm you're like a super fan you can follow my twitch and those are all uh peter pandam i think my linkedin might be something different but it's linked on here or I'm sure you can find it so fantastic yeah. man we're just about, we're just about to hit an hour is, is there anything we didn't cover today that you might want to chat about otherwise i'm sure we can do this again in a couple of months time after you've finished your crazy travel schedule ah uh, no i think i think i've hit everything that i'm really really passionate about and um a little bit angry about i guess you could say <laughs> it's great. look at it's uh, the other thing that i find is is not just not just the fact that it's hard to get a player in here often i find it's hard to get a player to to say their opinions which is one thing i respect about you that you don't often get and is that is that because they're scared you know if they if they talk out too much players aren't going to get signed to something else so they just simply just don't want what comes with you know giving your opinion yeah there, there can be a lot of um baggage around giving your opinion for sure i i've always been really opinionated most you know partially because you know i'm selfish for attention i like to be the you know center of attention in the spotlight uh number you know, also just because i've been able to build myself a brand through having opinions on things uh it's, it's whatever mm-hmm. like but the, the cool thing about building my own brand is that when i don't have a team or when i'm looking for a new team people message me and give me op- opportunities and offers and i'm not out there chasing i've i've never not had a contract in dota um and yeah, as much as people give me shit for, you know, maybe saying the wrong thing every once in a while, it's done a lot more for me and it's kind of raised my um, level of exposure um, than it would otherwise. So yeah, I just, you know, I just want to be right mm-hmm. now. I want, I, want, I, want, I want people to hear how smart I am, you know, occasionally, <laughs> or at least, you know, it's, it's fun to experience that. So I think I have a lot to offer sometimes or a lot to offer when it comes to like esports and Dota and the whole system. Mm. So I'm happy to um, like, I don't know, like talk about it, you know, maybe some of it's bullshit, but you know, you got to believe somebody at some point. So have faith that I know what I'm talking about. Is there anyone else like you in, in Dota 2 that I should follow or anyone listening? Um, I think it would be really hard to get other people to talk about some of the stuff that I've talked about on here. But mm, probably no tail is just the best one. Maybe I don't think Puppy would do it or give time. I don't think Kura would do it or give time. I'm trying to think of other people. Um, I don't know, man. It, it's really tough. Like the people sure. sometimes, well, sometimes the people that are willing to do it just don't have a lot to say. And yeah. when you do something like this, it, it's almost like a performance, right? Like I'm, I'm on webcam here trying to say things that people want to hear or maybe just give information that I think is relevant for others to listen to. And that in itself is kind of a lot, really just really intimidating for lots of Dota players. Mm. Well, I thank you for taking the time at your busy schedule. Obviously you've got a bit of a break coming up now, but like I said, it's, it's really hard to, to get a player and, I've been trying for a long time because there's there's so many times when I'm in these business meetings with people, um, people are sprouting, you know, spruiking their their bullcrap about Joe to Pro, about how much they know about the industry. And so many times I'm thinking they're being like, I don't even know what the players want <laughs> right now. You know, I don't know what the pro players and we're trying to make decisions for them. I feel like it's politicians that don't talk to their constituents sometimes. So thank you for coming on and, you know, giving some of that back end and insider info into the scene. 
Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everybody who listened as well. Yeah, no worries, mate. But yeah, and like I said, happy to have you on another time. Hopefully we can do this again. But thanks, Pete. And thanks for everyone for listening in to the LinkedIn live stream and into the podcast. As always, there'll be plenty more guests coming out and we've got some pretty interesting announcements coming soon. Thanks for listening, guys. See you soon. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg.